0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find the book of Exodus. And if you are a guest of ours this morning, we're walking through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're almost done with the third series in the book of Exodus. We come today to Exodus chapter 15, but we're going to cover the rest of chapter 15, all of 16, and a little of 17. I hope you got coffee. In all honesty, we find ourselves in a section of the passage that really relates together so beautifully it didn't make sense to divide it up. So we're going to begin this morning in Exodus chapter 15, and in just a moment I'm going to preach from verses 22 of Exodus 15 all the way through chapter 16 and just the first few parts of verse chapter 17. Now, we won't have the opportunity to read every single verse, but as you'll see in just a moment, it all deals with one single subject. To catch you up, the series is named by Pharaoh. Pharaoh, after enduring the 10th plague, told Moses and the people of God, get out. And they leave. And as we have seen, just their leaving was evidence of the power and the providence of God where they end up trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And then one of the most famous miracles in all of the Bible we explored two weeks ago as we saw the Lord split the Red Sea, deliver the Hebrews out across the Red Sea into the wilderness and on their way to the promised land. And then he subsequently drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea and off they go. It was so good that last week we saw how the people of God stopped and sang about the goodness of God and His provision. So to say we are on a high note, I would say that it's a lot like where you find yourself this morning. You've probably had several things to do today to get your family prepared to be here. I love to see parents coming in with those little ones because as a parent of children, I know what it takes to get everyone to one place on time with everyone dressed with the right shoes on in the right places. It is a logistical miracle that takes place on a weekly basis here. And to see that and to see those families place a priority in worship matters so greatly. And I am sure that it brings great joy to the Lord. And then you find yourself into your seat. You get settled in. There are announcements. There's a welcome. There's a prayer time. And then we begin to sing. And one of my favorite things is to stand in the back or to stand just back off to the right and watch you worship and sing to the Lord. No doubt some of you had very difficult weeks. Others of you may say it was sort of a normal week. Some of you may say it was a great week. But it's really hard if you know and love the Lord not to have your hearts warmed in the worship of God before him in the presence of his people. And so, this is, I hope, one of those spiritual highs in your life on a weekly basis. In fact, your God knew how important it was that he gave it to you on a weekly basis for you to gather with God's people in keeping the Sabbath principle of the Old Testament, as we'll talk about in just a few moments. So, it's not a time that we like to think about the hard part of walking with the Lord. Let me show you a number. Fifty-eight. Now, you can think about this number for a lot of reasons. You can concentrate on this number, but let me tell you what this number is and why I've never forgotten it. I'm not 58 yet. Got a good ways to go before that. Not 58 yet. I don't have $58 million. Wish I did. 5.8 of it would come to church at the mill. I promise, Jesus. I promise. (laughs) We'll round it up to six. I, I promise you. 58 is what was written on the paper of my first exam in college. (laughs) I've never forgotten it. Now, mind you, it was not out of 60. (laughs) My first ever college exam, freshman biology 101. I did what got me through high school. I looked over some stuff, paid attention a little bit, enrolled into that class with great yet false confidence. And I made a 58. And I remember when that professor handed that paper back to me, I remember thinking, you know, there were times in my high school years where my dad looked at me after some of my poorer performances and said, son, college is not for everybody. (laughs) What a lot of sunshine blown at me in my house. And I remember thinking when I looked at that 58, you know, he may be right. What am I doing here? And and I'll never forget that because it was a slap in the face. And for the first time in my life, I had to ask and answer a question. Do I even know how to study? Now, fast forward it through many, many years of being with and around young people. Most of you would tell, and I know there's many educators in the room, that that is actually a pretty common experience for a college freshman, that they actually have to learn how they learn and learn to study. And I would, and I would go on to have a wonderful academic career and and, and and do really well. In fact, every degree I progressed, my GPA got higher. I got more interested and more focused. I did something that's remarkable. It happens to a lot of young men. I grew up. And, and, and so, And so, I look back on that, and of all the 90s and 95s and even the hundreds that you or I may have received, that test score might have been the most valuable one I ever got because it was a wake-up call. And the truth is, no student enjoys tests, but no teacher worth their salt would argue you could do away with them. In fact, tests are just a part of life, and it's not true just academically, it's true in literally Every area. In fact, I would say it this way anything that has value, we test. I mean, if your car is not running correctly, you go to a mechanic, and now because we drive very complex computers, they plug it into a diagnostic machine and they will say, We just need to run a test to see where the problem is. If you are having symptoms and you don't feel well within yourself, you go see your physician and they're going to first run a battery of tests. To determine that. That's true for you. It's true for your dog. It's true for your truck. If you build a home, there will be a home inspector who will come out at every phase of the project to test and see of the quality of work, and you want them. They can be hard to deal with, but you want them to do this because it is the largest financial investment of your life to either purchase or build a home. So, so the truth is, even though the students in the room don't necessarily like taking tests, Every part of life is a test, and anything we value, we test, and so does God. So, I'd actually like to preach to you a message about His test in our life, about a faith worth testing. Because when we open up chapter 15 and we deal with this beautiful psalm, this song that we dealt with last week, all the way down through verse 21... We then begin a subject of basic needs. There are some basic needs that every person in this room shares. And once we get past the most basic. The most basic thing that we need, which is oxygen. Without it, we can live only a few minutes, and without oxygen, even after a few minutes, we can experience severe brain, organ, and tissue damage. It is the very first thing a baby is evaluated on when they leave the womb of their mother and they pass through the birth canal. The doctor or the nurses or the technicians, anyone there wants to make sure the baby's airway are cleared And they breathe. That's why the God has programmed them to cry and to scream at birth, to clear out that airway so that they breathe. And the very first thing you test with children is their oxygen level. And their blood oxygen level tells you whether or not their lungs are functioning. But then, within a matter of moments, especially now that many have seen the value of skin-on-skin contact with newborns, within a matter of moments in a normal birth, When you lay the child on the bosom of his or her mother, they will begin looking to nurse because the second thing that every human being needs beyond oxygen is nourishment. And nourishment comes in two forms, what we drink and what we eat, liquid nourishment and, of course, solid food. And the basic of liquid nourishment is water. Now, I've been preparing all my life for a famine, I'd be fine if the food source got cut off for a while. You can live a lot longer than you think without food. Those of you in this room that have a relative amount of health could actually endure fasting. Wouldn't be bad for you. There are major medical benefits, but if you shut the water off, you will dehydrate very quickly, and that's extraordinarily dangerous. Well, imagine being a generation of slaves Who've been miraculously liberated, yet you are men, you are elderly, you are women, you are children, there are infants, there's old, young, male, female, some healthy, some not so healthy, and you are out through the Red Sea in this miraculous moment of God's provision. The very next thing you're facing is a wilderness that happens to be a desert. There are two things that every person is thinking about what am I gonna drink? And what am I going to eat? And it is the need for water and food that forms the context for God to begin testing their faith. Now, the interesting thing about the subject of testing, even before we dive into the examples, is that I do think it's important to have a proper view of tests from God. Because there is some who believe we should run from tests or that all tests are a result of disobedience. If I face a test or a trial, it must be that God is mad at me. Or if something looked as though it could test my faith, I want to go the other direction because I don't want my faith tampered with. But that's not at all what the Scripture teaches. In fact, just a brief survey of testing before the Lord will show you that. Look what the Scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. This is, of course, not our home passage, but this is written to Christians who were actually being persecuted for their faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. But then watch what Peter says in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found and result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? So the trials we face do test our faith. But the testing of our faith proves whether or not our faith is genuine. Peter's not the only person to deal with this. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it in similar fashion. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Can you imagine being on a ball team that never got to play a game? I mean, we all know that nobody enjoys practice. In fact, usually the things that separate elite athletes from average athletes at the professional level, is not that they are not athletic. They're all gifted. They're all athletic. But the elite athletes outwork everybody. They understand training. But they outwork everybody not to win in training. Practice. We talking about practice. Practice. Remember that press conference by Allen Iverson? No, the point is to play the game. And guess what is at the top of the Coliseum of every game you go to? A scoreboard. It's in the end zone of a football game. It's at the top of a coliseum in a basketball game. It's in left or right field of a baseball game. And it keeps either points or runs. And why? Because a game is a test. You're testing your ability against someone else, and the team that wins wins the test. They win the competition. It's very much like anything you do with your fitness or your mental ability. You test it. Let me ask you something. Do you think it's a? valuable thing to take care of your body? I I do. Do you think it's a valuable thing for your kids to learn how to spell? Yeah, I I think so. You think it's a valuable thing to know what's going on if you have sickness in your body or if you wonder whether or not your alternator is going out in your vehicle? Yeah. But all the more is the value of our faith. So, why would we not expect God to test it? I mean, mean, even David talked about wanting God to test him. Psalm 26, 2, prove me, O Lord, Try me. Test my heart and my mind. Paul grabbed this same idea and basically would say, Test yourself. One of the things that people have now are apps that help you do this. When my son enrolled at North Greenville to study the ministry, he is now taking Greek. I took Greek, lots of Greek, lots of Greek, and it was hard. I'm not a gifted language student. All my buddies that were gifted language students are professors. They can't preach our way out of a paper bag, but they're professors. It did not come naturally to me. And I lived with flashcards. And I would, I would go over the vocabulary over and over. And I said, hey, Ty, you want my flashcards? I was kind of proud. He goes, Dad, I got an app. They're already made for me. This soft generation. I went and downloaded the app. <laughs> Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul says nobody should want to die with any doubt about their faith. Well, if you want to get rid of doubt, test your faith. Lay it before the Lord and say, examine me, Lord, and make sure that my faith is real. This does not, of course, mean that Paul or any other biblical writer wanted us to live in a constant source of doubt. But he did want us to want our test, our faith tested. And what, and what we find is that as soon as the Hebrews, the children of Israel, leave for the promised land, they think their greatest enemy is at the bottom of the Red Sea. But what we're going to find for the rest of the book is that their greatest enemy is not the Egyptians, it's not the Amalekites, it's not the Philistines, it's not the Hittites or the Canaanites. It's doubt doubt and unfaithfulness to God. Friend, I would just say that's still my greatest enemy. I'm not belittling the enemy. I'm not belittling Satan. I'm not belittling spiritual warfare. I was in Nicaragua this week, and a man came up to me after I preached at a trash dump and asked me to pray because his home was under spiritual attack. And he expressed his faith in Christ. He was a believer, and so I believe spiritual warfare is real. And I spoke with him about that, and we prayed. I'm not in any way belittling those things. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I was able to tell this brother that at the name of Jesus, the demon has to flee. He has no power or authority over his life. I can certainly be influenced by the enemy. I cannot be possessed by him because I've been bought with a price. I belong to the king. I was an orphan, and now I am a son, and I'm highly favored, and so too is every son and daughter of the utmost high God in this room. And so to remember those things is important. And then I remember he's not my greatest enemy. My greatest enemy is me, my doubt. My unfaithfulness, what you'll find as we journey through the wilderness, we're going to take about the same time Moses did. I figure on finishing this within 40 years. What you'll find is is that every time the children of Israel face a trial, it is ultimately a test to refine and purify their faith. There are no less than three this morning that we'll look at briefly The first one, of course, is when the Lord tested their confidence. He tested their confidence. Look at the second part of chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Remember, we've just seen this amazing worship service break out, and now they're ready to go. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. It is not coincidence that that is about the time dehydration can begin to set in to the point of threatening your life. If you don't drink anything today, you're going to feel lousy. You're going to get headaches. It's going to affect you. In fact, every person I've ever known that knows anything about fitness, regardless of what you do to work out or what you do to diet or what food you eat, always say almost all of us must increase our water intake. It is just good for the body to remain hydrated, and we most of the time do not drink enough water. But you go three days and your health can begin to break down. Your circulation will suffer. Your ability to digest what food you have, the ability to think clearly, all those can be deeply affected. And so, three days in, the Scripture says they found no water. But look at verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. How do you think they found that out? They tried. Therefore, it was named Mara, And the people grumbled against Moses. Now, I, I find myself so tempted to look at these people and go, are you kidding me? I mean, this is the guy that said, and the Red Sea split and the entire Egyptian army was drowned. This is the guy who threw it down and it turned into a snake. He picked it up. It turned back into a staff. He told Pharaoh in predictive mode every single plague that would take place. This is the guy who told them exactly how to be covered by the blood of the lamb on the night of Passover. So, this is not a guy who has not delivered. But the moment they got thirsty, watch, they forgot about all that God had done because they were more focused on what they didn't have there is a narrative parallel between the bitterness of the water and the bitterness of their attitude. And it really speaks to confidence. You know what runs parallel to confidence? When my confidence is low, my complaining is high. When my confidence in God's plan begins to suffer, typically my complaining goes up. Now, some of you are outward complainers and everything you think you say. I'm a member of that club. And we have to work on that. Others of you more inwardly or introspective, but you harbor those feelings of resentment and complaint. But I can tell you whether or not you are an expressive person and we can read you the moment we see you, or you're an introspective person and you hold your feelings tight, you keep your cards close to your chest. When you lose your confidence in what you see the Lord doing, your complaint level will increase. And that's exactly what happened. And look what takes place in the passage. The Bible says, Here, beginning in verse 25, And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet from bitter to bitter. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Now, notice the giving of the rule in and of itself is a part of the test. Now, again, It wasn't that they didn't find water in Mora, they found water in Mora. The water was not drinkable. It was bitter. There are a lot of different reasons. Liberal theologians try to figure out, well, why was the water bitter and what wood can you put in it to make it sweet? This text doesn't give me any of that. The text just says the water was undrinkable, and God miraculously turned it sweet as Moses threw a log into the water. And so, immediately, they had water to drink. They're not camping at Mara. They don't stay there. They're just relieving their thirst there. And then God, having got their attention, said, Let me lay out for you how this is going to work. This is how this is going to work when you begin to walk with me as my people. You were an enslaved people. Then you were a threatened people. Then you became a trapped people. But I broke your bondage of slavery. I got you out of Egypt. And I removed your greatest foe physically in the picture of Pharaoh's army being destroyed. But let me tell you how this is going to work. Let me lay, God would say, the parameters of our relationship. Look at the statute, verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Now, it does lay out beautifully, but it is sort of the repetition of the same idea. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. And then he ties that to his name, which of course speaks to his character. For I am the Lord, your healer. Before I apply the verse, let me guard you against misapplying the verse. A verse like this has to be interpreted in its context. We always do that, okay? What you can't do is take this verse and somehow teach that God is saying, As long as people obey God, they never get sick. There's two reasons for that. Number one, that's not what the verse is teaching. And number two, the Bible doesn't bear that out, nor does the Christian experience. I know precious people in my life who are sick today, not because of disobedience, but because we live in a lost and fallen world where we're all doomed for this. The weekend of my anniversary that you so graciously gave to me about a month ago. There was only one man that I wanted to preach that message, and that's my mentor, Dr. Jim Shaddix. And those of you who follow me on social media know that within a few days of preaching on this pulpit, he was diagnosed with a severely aggressive brain tumor. He has undergone not one, but two surgeries, and he is in rehab right now, relearning the very basic things of life and he will then begin aggressive chemo and radiation and based on the report of the type of cancer a cancer that has affected many of the members of this church with family and loved ones the survival rate is extraordinarily low so the focus is on the quality of his life and sustaining his life but unless the lord miraculously removes this cancer statistically my mentor, will be with Jesus because of this. Now, I'm not writing him off at this point, and I'm not in any way stopping my prayers, but I do not believe my mentor's brain tumor is a result of a life that hasn't been well lived, a life that has been lived in disobedience. I believe that my mentor— Like your pastor and every man and every woman in this room lives in a fallen world and we have fallen bodies and our bodies succumb to all sorts of illness, suffering, and disease. And there are a few who are able to enjoy the precious gift of a long life and die in their late 90s, perhaps even making three digits with their loved ones around them, fully attuned to all their faculties before they close their eyes and go be with Jesus. But, friends, that's pretty rare. That's pretty rare. A dear friend of mine lost his granddaughter this weekend, who was put to bed healthy as a five-month-old and found dead the next morning. You know the condition. Sids. When we come to passages like this, it's very important to put them in the context of what God is teaching. What did he do to Egypt? He intentionally brought severe plagues, starting with the least severe to the most severe, because of their disobedience, resistance, and hard-heartedness against God. And we have them listed in the book of Exodus, 1 through 10. We have them. And so, God is looking at this people who, by the way, have witnessed all 10 of the plagues, They saw the skin boils. They saw the insects. They saw the river turn to blood. They saw the night of weeping and wailing. They saw the blood on their hands as they put it on their doorpost in preparation for the Passover. So, these are people who have lived it. And God is basically saying, yes, I know your enemy was Egypt. Yes, I broke the back of their resistance. Yes, I drowned the army of Pharaoh that was surely intent on bringing you back into slavery. But don't you think you're any better than them. Don't you think I've chosen you because you're a better version of a human being? No, no, no. By my grace, I have delivered you. So make sure that you give me your attention because right now you are the liberated ones who have been oppressed. But if you stray from me, You'll become the oppressors. You'll become the one who mistreat your neighbor. You'll become the legalistic. You'll become the one who will lay the seedbeds for a group of people who shouted one Friday, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. If you do that, I will bring before you what I brought before Egypt. Give me your attention. It was a rather comical example, and I understand you have to be careful. I'm not saying that my GPA is serious as this. But that 58 woke me up. Some of you have received blood work that changed the way you take care of your body. Uh, Others of you have gone through a trial in your marriage, and you looked at one another and you say, we didn't weather that too good. Maybe things are not quite as good as I thought they were. Maybe we need to get some help. Still others of you may have felt as though your faith was strong until some blessings in your life were no longer blessings and you realized you were more in love with the blessings than the blesser. And if you fall more in love with the blessings of God than the God who blesses, the moment the God who blesses shuts off the blessings You have to take inventory of where your heart is. This is what he's saying. Is your confidence in me? He turns the water sweet and they drink. And then chapter 16 opens with food. We see the second test. If chapter 15 is the test of their confidence, chapter 16, he tested their obedience. Look what happens beginning in verse 27 of chapter 15. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamp there by the water. Think how beautiful that is. Those numbers, of course, are also symbolic. But 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. This is what we think about when we think about going out of town, taking mama somewhere where she can lay on the beach under a palm tree and have that little flag you plant to order your little drink with an umbrella in it at the resort hotel. And so, there they are enjoying the blessings of God. And then they keep moving. Look at verse 1, chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So they've been on the road for a while now. And the whole congregation of people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, I want you to grab that word grumbled. We're going to see it again if you have your Bible open. I hope you do. And you look down in verse 8 in the second phrase, you'll see your grumbling is not against us, but it's against the Lord. So, they grumbled at Moses, and Moses was quick to say, look, I'm not in and of myself leading this. I'm God's chosen man. I'm the prophet of you right now. I'm your leader, but I'm just taking the orders from God and delivering it to you. So, when you grumble against me, you're grumbling against God. This is why I tell young preachers to preach the Bible. If you preach the Bible to your people and they become offended, they can take that up with the Lord. It's his word. It's not my opinion. If you get up and pontificate about your opinions, and then you're going to make some people happy and some people mad, and they switch up all the time. But if you just give people the Word of God, then if people are offended and convicted, it gives you great pause to say, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm, I'm your advocate. I just want you and I to submit, submit and surrender to the same Word. And, and therefore, it is not you and me in an adversarial relationship. I want to help you, and we want to grow together. Moses is saying, you're grumbling against me, but ultimately, you're grumbling against the Lord. If you look down in verse 12, we see God heard it that way. Look at verse 12. I have heard the grumbling of the people. Now, go back up to the top of the chapter. What are they grumbling about? Well, Here's what the Scripture says in verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Can you get a load of these people? When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out here into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Think about that passage. In Egypt, Lord, we're enslaved. Deliver us at the Red Sea. Moses, we should have died in Egypt. Are there not enough graves there that you would bring us out here to be buried? God delivers them there. Now, we find ourselves a month in, and we find no food. And they're like, you know, we were slaves, but we had pots full of meat. You don't think about food till you're hungry. And then you start really thinking about it, don't you? And you think about it, you picture it, right? That's why advertising is the way it is. That's why the cheeseburger on the advertisement looks awesome. And then you go into the store, and it don't look like the one in the advertisement, right? right? And the person eating it has a six-pack. And I don't mean of cold ones. I mean, they look great, and they're eating this poisonous food. And you go eat it, and they wouldn't put you on a commercial to save your life. Everything's not always what it seems. They're out of food. Most scholars believe that they brought food with them, and surely they did. But it would take about a month to run through all those rations. Can't carry a lot of water with you, but you can carry a lot of food. And we know they prepared what? Unleavened bread. So they had bread to take with them, and it ran out, and they began to mumble, and they began to complain. Now, the interesting thing is sometimes we come to words in the Bible that are repeated. And we don't spend a lot of time. I don't think I've ever heard anybody teach me a theology of grumbling. Yet three times in this chapter, they grumbled against the Lord. They grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against the Lord. And I began to study this subject this week, and it dawned on me, the Bible has a lot to say about grumbling. Now, we teach our children not to be grouchy, right? I mean, who wants to be Oscar? Nobody wants to be Oscar off Sesame Street, right? right? He's grouchy. And of course, his context is that. He gets the worst of people. They open the lid, throw their trash on him. And nobody wants to be a grouch. Nobody wants to be grumbling. Every parent in the room has corrected their children with their attitude. In fact, if you are a parent worth your salt, you don't just care that your kids obey you. You care how they obey you. You send them back into their room and you say, young lady, you adjust your heart. And when you come out, you have a happy heart. And if you don't have a happy heart, you fake you having a happy heart until you start feeling like you're fake because I'm not putting up with your sourpuss attitude. This is what you do when you're parenting. You get happy with one another. And I learned that speech from Laurel. She gives that to me about twice a week. <laughs> the truth is, is that any employer in the room, you'll hire anybody regardless of what they know or they don't know, if they'll show up on time, have a good attitude and work hard. You, you can teach them. And we know this with our children. We know this in athletics. We know this in academics. Your attitude matters. Well, who made us? The Lord. And he cares about our attitude. But there's a difference between a grumbling spirit and godly sorrow. We see this in the Scriptures. Jesus said, this is Jesus, he says these words in John 6, do not grumble among yourselves. This is not just taught by Jesus, it's taught elsewhere in the New Testament. Look at the next passage. Do all things without grumbling, grumbling or disputing, Paul would tell the Philippians in his epistle of joy. We don't just see it in Philippians. Look at James. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. God cares how I treat you, and if I'm unhappy with you, grumbling against you is not allowed. That's an act of disobedience. So, we know that, but we also know that Grumbling is grumbling because of the attitude from which it comes. It assigns blame and assumes entitlement. In other words, when I grumble sinfully, I'm blaming someone else for my situation, and I'm assuming that I deserve better. But then there's godly sorrow, like what David prays. In the book of Psalms, David says these words, "With my voice I cry out to the Lord, with my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. Now watch, I pour out my complaint before him, I tell my trouble before him." This is important now. Watch this. Grumbling assigns blame and assumes I'm entitled to better. Godly sorrow's different. Godly sorrow expresses my pain. And seeks relief, Lord, please remove this from me. Lord, please give me peace. Lord, please give me forgiveness. Lord, please take this burden away from me. But also wants understanding. Lord, teach me what you want to teach me through this. I don't have to enjoy it to recognize you're doing something. And ultimately, Father, though I am suffering, I want the greater good and the glory. That's not grumbling. That's lamenting before the Lord. Now watch, now watch. Show me a woman in this room or a man in this room who will sincerely bring their sorrow before the Lord. I'll show you someone who don't grumble much. Show me someone who's consistently grumbling. Their problem is that they're not taking their sorrow to the right place, to the Lord. And so we find this surfacing over and over in Israel, this grumbling and this test of obedience really had two questions. I always hated that when the professor said, "We'll only have five questions because, I mean, if I miss one, I got an 80. Man, I need 300 questions. I can at least go b B, 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 B if I run out of time. But there were really two questions. Question number one, do you trust my sustaining provision? That was the question to Israel because the subject was manna. In fact, that's what happens. Look at the passage beginning in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. Man, I love bread. Why is it the one thing they say I shouldn't eat? Man, I love bread. In Nicaragua this week, they have this coffee bread. They serve with coffee, and uh, it's got honey and sugar on it. And the food in the developing world is many times better because the FDA has not done us any favors with all the junk they allow to put in their food. But it, But, man, this food, this car. And when I first got there the first morning, I'm like, yeah, I'm not not doing carbs. No, thank you. I'll just have coffee. And then I made a mistake. That afternoon, I just took a little little, little nibble. By the end of the week, I'm buying it by the bags. Give me, I mean, I'm serving you, Jesus. I'll get back on the wagon next week, you know. This is for the Lord. You think the apostle Paul was low carb? I doubt it. And so, but, man, when you were hungry, There's something about the sustenance of bread. Even when your stomach's upset, a little bread can calm it. It is the staple. And in most environments, there is a staple food, and then the good stuff is added on to it. In many environments, it's rice or beans, and then you have some bread to go with it, or a tortilla or a yeast roll, something of sustenance. It's interesting that the Lord said, I'm going to give you bread, but there's something else here. This is so good. These were people who lived in the agricultural environment. How do you get bread? You know, if all of a sudden you and I try to live off the grid, how are you going to get bread? Well, if you have to get bread like the ancient people, you have to grow wheat. And then once you grow wheat, you have to harvest the seeds of wheat. Then you have to crush the wheat and turn it into flour. Then you have to create yeast, leaven. And then you have to knead it. You have to mix it correctly. You may put a binder in it, an egg or something. And then you have to bake it. So, from start to finish, it's months. If you were wait to the seed to turn into a wheat stalk, which turns into seed, which turns into flour, which turns into dough, which then is baked and then is eaten, it's months. And yet, God said, I'm going to give it to you every morning, fresh baked. And I'm going to do this through your entire wilderness campaign because you're on the move. Now, not one of these people knew yet that that would be 40 years. 40 years of anything can get a little old. What they did know is that they had no time to plant crops and that even if they were to carry every ounce of food they could from Egypt, they could never sustain themselves for months. And there is nowhere in the wilderness to feed an entire civilization. And so, he gives them bread from heaven, but he gives it to them daily. Oh, and then I remember Jesus saying, Lord, Give us our daily bread. Why do you think Jesus said it's hard for rich people to be saved? Is it because he loved poor people more? No, we don't have any scripture that says that people are more valuable to God depending on their wealth. He knows that salvation comes when you feel lost vulnerable, and insecure. That's the prerequisite of trusting Christ. Well, guess what bread for tomorrow stored in the barns of today breeds? Security, comfort. We begin to feel a false sense that we have our own ability to take care of ourselves. Let the electrical grid of this nation fail just for a few hours— and you'll watch society completely break down, which means that any sense of security we think we have is just that. It's a false sense of security. And he's saying, do you trust me? Now, something interesting happens. Verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. So that evening... He brought quail into the camp, and they are fine eating. If you never had any pan-fried quail, you're missing out. But that was a one-time event. He did not bring quail every evening, but he brought manna every morning. And he even says over in verse 18, But when they measured it in Omar... Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Even though he told the people, just get what you need for today, what was their natural instinct? I don't know about tomorrow. I'm going to get all I can store. When Paul is teaching on stewardship in 2 Corinthians, he says, For I do not mean that others should be eased or you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, you're abundant at the present time, you should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, and then Paul quotes Exodus, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The principle is this. If God has given you more than you need, find somebody who needs it. Be generous, share, love, support. Should you save? Should you plan? Should you provide for your family? Of course. But before you live in extravagance, invest and love other people with what you have in the belief that among God's people, if you go without, others will invest in you. And this is being taught here. He's saying, do you trust me to sustain you, my sustaining power? And then of all places, and we're done, of all places, he implements the Sabbath principle. Look, Look what happens beginning in verse 22. On the sixth day when they gathered, twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said, this is what the Lord is commanding. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside all morning, at the morning, as Moses commanded. It did not stink and there were no worms, so God preserved it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Is this before or after the Ten Commandments? It's before. We haven't got to Mount Sinai yet. The fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments is that you shall keep the Sabbath. He is laying the foundation for a command he's about to give. What is the command? The command is, just as you trust me daily for your sustenance, I want you to trust me and rest in me weekly and not work for your sustenance. And of course, we see this in the Sabbath, the rhythm of rest. Don't ever think of the Sabbath as a requirement. Think of it as a gift. It was a gift with requirements, but it is given to God's people to rest in Him. There are two applications. We'll get to them in the several weeks. I'll touch them quickly. One, the principle of a rhythm of rest and worship weekly is still binding on our lives. We ought to look at this principle and set aside a day where we worship and rest before the Lord. You're doing that this morning. But the real Sabbath is Christ. We rest in him. It's why we don't obey the seventh day Sabbath of Saturday. It's why we worship on the Lord's day. This is where I would differ from my friends and loved ones in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Christ is our Sabbath. He has fulfilled all the law, and so we rest in him. You know what the doctor says you need? More water, a good diet, and rest. Look what God is giving his people the minute they leave slavery. Which leads to the last test, and I've got to move quickly. They tested his patience. They tested his patience. No sooner is this amazing chapter unfolded that we get to chapter 17, and they run out of water again. And the Scripture says in verse 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Newsflash, God has the right to test us. Family, we do not need to test God. Whenever humans are putting God to the test, it is never pointed in a positive light unless he asks us to test an act of obedience. In other words, he says to Malachi, test me and see when he talks about the tithes. So, we can test God by acting in obedience. But when we act in disobedience, we ultimately test his patience. Look what the Scripture says, beginning... In verse 3 but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said why do you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst so Moses cried to the Lord what shall I do with this people I can relate to that what shall I do with this people they are almost ready to stone me and the Lord said pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go Behold, I will stand before you and there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so and in the sight of the elders in Israel and called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. This is complaining Veal and Testenberg. That's what he did. Is the Lord not among or is the Lord among us or not. This is the one test I do not want to give. I don't want my disobedience and doubt to test the Lord's patience. Often, He is patient and kind. But I think it's fascinating that here they are again saying, are you with us or are you not? Even though they had eaten manna that morning and the morning before and the morning before, and they had seen God continually meet our needs. If you've ever struggled with doubt, let me give you a simple exercise. Stop. Step back. Acknowledge the situation you are struggling in. Turn around. And look at your past. And has not God proved faithful at every turn? This is why Paul says to the Corinthian believers about the rock that was Christ. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You know what he would go on to say? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You ever had a teacher say, hey, second period, listen. The first period bombed this test I'm about to give you. You better take 15 minutes and look over your material. You'd be scared to death studying hard, right? Paul is saying, our ancestors failed this test. Don't fail the test. You say, well, what's that got to do with me? We'll see the big picture. One of the beauties of Exodus is that Exodus parallels the Christian life. Egypt, enslaved. Homeless, doomed, that's what you are when you're lost. Plagues in the Passover, that's when God saves you, covers you with his blood. Red Sea, you pass through the water. you baptized, delivered. Wilderness, your faith is tested. When we get to Jordan, that's our death, and Canaan is heaven. That's why all the old Christians sang about crossing over Jordan and Canaan land is just in sight. So, I'm going to ask you to do something I've never asked you to do. Take and trust the tests of God. Let's bow together. As you think about this passage, I asked Josh to come and to lead us in this simple little song. But I'd actually rather you just remain seated, because every time I stand you up, 14% of you rush out. And it bothers me. Would you just identify a test you believe God is laid before you? I'm not asking you to make up one, I, I, I'm not in any way trying to play any games with you, but. It may be a difficult situation at work. It may be a child who's a struggle. It may be a, an adult child who is not a believer. It could be a scare with your health. It may be just a friend who's suffering. I know certainly my faith is tested when I talk to people who are suffering untold misery, and I struggle to understand why. I don't know what yours is, but would you just lay that test before your mind and take just a few minutes to think about it. And with that in your mind, I wanna speak over you and say this, God has not allowed this into your life in the hopes that you fail the test. Any good teacher worth their salt is going to push their students, but she doesn't wanna fail them, she wants them to succeed. Any good parent is going to hold their children accountable to a high standard, not to break their spirit, but that they flourish as adults. Any decent boss is going to hold people accountable to do the work of the business. Not on some twisted ego trip, but so the business is profitable and the work environment is fair and healthy. We understand this as humans. Well, how much more does your heavenly Father want you to pass these tests. He's not against you. He is not interested in crushing you. So thank him for it. Right now, thank him for the test and the trial you're facing. Ask him to teach you. Ask Him for the strength to pass. Ask Him that you might bring glory and honor to Him in your perseverance. Set in this moment, and as you pray, listen to these words. Father, that is our prayer. As we leave this place, may we be men and women who triumph in the test, finding our faith to be sincere and pure, believing that you are for us and that your glory can be displayed in our perseverance. I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.